Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Episode three, season three, Dad Pod, Osher Ginsberg here, Charlie Clawson. I can't believe we actually, we had to labor such an important part of your life, such an important day. We had to dedicate two whole episodes to it. Yeah, two episodes to it. Before we get to the uh, second part of labor though, Osh, uh, I'll bring you up to date with some more current news with my parenthood. Oh yeah. And that is Iona has discovered the Wiggles. <laughs> Wow. Now tell tell me about this because I'm I'm on a um I read on some, you know, super like government sponsored website because I'm really afraid of like following Insta mum advice or, you know, mummy blogger advice. So I'm like, what's that like a, like an actual childhood thing? It says no screens before two. So I'm like, okay, no screens. And I'll come upstairs sometimes and Audrey's got play school on. I'm like, ah, what am I going to do? She's fucking flat out. What happens when your little baby watches the Wiggles for the first time? She, well, she's pretty much been screen free, you know, she's almost 18 months now and, you know, very rarely uh, have we had a TV on. In this new house we've just moved into, we didn't even have a TV for two months. But we put the wiggles on because we were both working from home and we needed just like 15 minutes where we could both sit down and work. And it is like crack for babies. She loves it. But not just like the, you know, the, the desire to watch the Wiggles, but the reaction to it. Like there is something they have tapped into. Because yeah. now like the media side of my brain is like, what have these people created that is so perfect? Because there must be a ton of children's entertainers out there, but these guys and girls cracked the code. Like it is so catchy. But now I'm sort of invested because I've watched quite a bit of it now with her because we'll do like 20-minute bursts of the Wiggles here and there. We'll play it in the car when we're driving somewhere. But now I'm invested in each of the Wiggles characters. Like, you know, I read comic books. I can't help it. They're sort of like superheroes. They're all colour-coded. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But the songs, Osh, the songs are playing in my head 24-7. I went to bed last night with Emma's yellow bow playing in my head and then Welcome to Wiggletown this morning. And I'm not a musician, but I'm starting to see some similarities in the chord progression. I think you would watch the Wiggles. You go, wait a minute, these guys are just recycling the same four chords. Having learned how to play a few of the songs on ukulele, I could tell you your perception is absolutely <laughs> correct. They are all the same four chords. But then again, most pop music from about 1955 to 1985 was all the same four chords. You're absolutely correct. I think from what I gather about their story, I'm pretty sure they work with early childhood educators and yep. the block colours are a very important distinction because I don't want to spoil this. If there's any kids listening, look away. Sometimes the Wiggles go on tour and there's like a bus and truck version of the Wiggles that aren't exactly the Wiggles that you know, but it's the same colours. So ah. whatever. Your face has just gone, how dare they? No, no. I'm Look, here's the thing. I can see that I, I get quite obsessive over things I'm into and I'm on the precipice now of becoming, like I haven't done the Wikipedia deep dive on uh-huh. all the wiggles past and present, but I can feel that it's coming along because there is something about what they do, which is like, this is what I was dreading most about becoming a dad is like, oh, the amount of like bullshit children's entertainment I'm going to have to watch. But I quite like watching the Wiggles. And I can also see the educational benefit as well. I've seen a gem because Emma Wiggle, who's the yellow Wiggle and the only female Wiggle at the moment, the way they present her is so interesting because she's never really gendered in a specific way. They don't really talk about her being pretty or nice or any of the kind of stereotypical female descriptions. She's just Emma and Emma loves to dance. And I'm like, ah, I can get behind this message. I'm happy with my daughter watching this. Well, look, I can be honest with you. My nephew, who's a bit older than Wolf, about two years older than Wolf, my nephew's right into Bluey. And not only is Bluey voiced by Dave from Custard, um, which makes me an old man, Bluey's fucking great. 
All right, you, and I know that'll really annoy your friend of mine, Will Anderson, who it always <laughs> fails to make the most watched show on the ABC because Bluey kicks him out of the box every single time. <laughs> but that's because Bluey's fucking awesome. <laughs> it's really, really good. But to get to Bluey, to get to Eagles, you have to go through this thing called labour, which is yep. what we're here to talk about today. We spoke about pre-labour on the previous episode. So today we're going to talk about active labour. The falsification, the lie that we've all been told by the movies has been, oh my God, baby's coming, dramatic drive to hospital, <gasps> it's a girl. Yeah. Wrong. The, the difference between, oh my God, baby's coming and it's a girl can be days and mm. weeks in our case of Audrey and I. We had a couple of false starts. We talked about that in season one. But it's very important to kind of start to recognise the, sp- the difference between pre-labour and active labour. And, and because of, I guess, you know, in many ways, because of a lot of the pop culture thing that's been around labour, and you talked about this last episode, there's a lot of fear around labour, and rightly so. It's an incredibly intense physical experience. Here I am as a man describing what labour is like. I've got no fucking idea. I can only see what I saw. I can only tell you what I saw, right? And rightly, you know, a, a number of people who are about to give birth go, well, I would like to think about drugs. You know, what's some ways that I can perhaps mitigate the the feelings that I'm going to get? One of the things that we did before we went into labour, before Audrey went into labour, is we went to a thing, a a calm birth course, and they they had a fantastic reframe. There's two things that they talked about. Try not to see it as pain, to try and see it as intensity. Yep. And to understand that your body will never give you anything more than it can handle. Right, you may not have ever experienced this level of intensity before, but your body knows what it's capable of and won't give you anything more. Audrey decided well in advance that she didn't want to go down the route of an epidural, mainly because she, I think the, for her, the idea of a needle going into her spinal cord was way more terrifying for her than the pain of childbirth. Mm. But she did have gas and gas was great for her up until a point, um, but then it just doesn't. It stops working. But it was she she got a great amount of help. The gas is just nitrous oxide. All right. It's happy gas. Yeah. It's Nangs. Like there's a <laughs> there's a there's a tube on the wall that just says Nangs above it, and you give it to your wife and away you go. There's a teenager there with a soda bottle. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the things to think about when you're deciding whether or not you want to have the drug option is there will get to a point during the latter stages of labor where drugs won't do anything. So you need to sort of have a plan. Like I know a lot of friends of female friends of mine, um, they wanted to try and go drug free, but also have the option of if it got too intense to be able to get the epidural or to get some kind of pain relief. But what you need to keep in mind is that is only possible to a certain point because once you get past the point of no return, then they can't give you the drugs and it's not going to make a difference anyway. Gemma was the same as Audrey. She wanted to kind of go drug free and she had the normal reservations that most women have about labor and if she could avoid pain, she wanted to, but she also wanted to be present for the experience. Her description of it was that she was so in the moment, like you're saying, the physical exertion, the, the, the pain is sort of compartmentalized in the same way that if you're competing in like an event where you are so physically taxed, be it an endurance event or a strength event or whatever, that you compartmentalize where the pain is. But having clear communication with your partner so that you can advocate for her in that situation is really, really important. So that's where the birth plan comes in. Yeah, and the advocating thing is something that I don't think we can talk too much about because you've known this this woman for a long time. Uh, clearly, you know this is uh, somebody that you've 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 met and you've fallen in love with. Hopefully, and you know you're you're having this baby together, so you've known them a long time. You've seen how they react when they're present in the moment. 
Audrey described when the contractions, by the time we got to the hospital, which we'll cover in a second though, uh, but just it's just on your point is why advocacy is important. When she was in the contractions, she says, look, I'm not even in the room at that point. Mm. I'm away somewhere. And then when the contractions are over, then I come back in here. So when she's out, and, and fair enough, you know, she's, yeah. I don't want to use the word disassociated, but she's just gone somewhere else and is unable to respond to what people are asking her or whatever because she's just dealing, just hyper-focused on dealing with this intensity. You have to be there to be able to go, actually, no, that's not what we want, or actually, yes, we'll have two more of those, or can you get that person out of the room, or can we have more of those people in the room? Yeah, That's the time you really have to do that. Be aware of what it is that you both want and what she would want, and don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to speak up. And that's also where, and it may sound a little cheesy, but that's also where sticking up some signs around the birthing room can be helpful because if you, uh, you know, you wanted to go drug free, so you're going to use your breathing and as much kind of like meditative techniques as you can, then just having some reminders stuck up on the wall that your partner can look at and center herself can be really helpful. Certainly if it's in their handwriting because they go, oh, that's right. Yeah, I did write that. That's, <laughs> that like, that's familiar because that, you may not even be able to associate with whoever it was who wrote that back back at that time. Uh, so, the, look, the drug thing is an option and I certainly, as you mentioned before, I've, I've spoken to people who are like, give me the drugs and they've just gone, it's too late. We can't do that. So here we go, have some nitrous oxide, in comes a kid with the nangs. Uh, so we talked a lot about, you know, there's a, there's a difference between when it starts and, you know, it's a boy or it's a girl. On average, the, the first stage of labour, on average, the bear in mind, can take up to about eight hours for a first-time mum, though, you know, can vary widely, can go up to 18 hours. Once the cervix is dilated, that's kind of when you're going into active labour, when the, when the pushing begins. Expect about two hours, all right? So, what we're talking about, this intensity, this watching your partner go through this, making noises you've never heard them make before, about two hours, all right? Now, how long this lasts is all dependent on two really important hormones, oxytocin and adrenaline. Oxytocin is the thing that keeps people calm. Adrenaline is the thing that makes people uh, either angry or annoyed or agitated. Adrenaline will shut off oxytocin, so you've got to have to keep that oxytocin flowing absolutely keep it flowing and that's that's really really important and we, we talked about getting to the hospital last episode but it's it's really really important that the transition from the home to the car driving is a calm one because otherwise the adrenaline can kick in and shut the oxytocin in when you were driving jim to the hospital did you manage to keep it calm no, uh, I've two things. One, I uh, didn't even consider putting her in the back seat so she could get comfortable and stretch out. I made her get in the front seat with her knees up around her ears. <laughs> and also, the second thing I didn't consider is that my Spotify playlist had been the last thing that the Bluetooth had connected to. So when you get into the car, you don't want to go under like a heavy metal compilation. <laughs> they were listening to Silent Night, Conquer and Command. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want man of war bringing your child into the world. That's all I'll say. Yeah, we actually had we had a playlist from Georgia. So I had a Yui Boom, and Georgia had made a playlist for us, which was absolutely perfect. And and she called the playlist Mum, and I had it in the room the whole time, and the whole way through the when it was quite funny actually because Audrey's on the nitrous oxide, and I've got actually video of her. You know, I feel a bit bad about taking this video because she was just high, all right, on nitrous oxide. And mm. um, 
she was just going, I love this song, Georgia, I love you. Because <laughs> Georgia just knew her favourite songs. And so Georgia was with us in the room with this playlist. It was it was super, super duper cool. We actually, uh, you talked last week about Gemma having to start marching around going, no, I want this baby out. I want this baby out right yeah. now. We were booked to be induced because of Audrey's age and Wolfie's size. We were booked to be induced. But, again, the oxytocin, the the the... A subconscious mind. They said, "Call us at five a.m. and we'll let you know when to come in to be induced." Right. So we're, we went to bed the night before, going, "This is the last night we're going to have with just one kid. Tomorrow we're going to have two kids." And then at three thirty in the morning, Audrey sat bolt upright in bed, going, "Oh fuck!" Bang contractions. All right, her brain just went, "Going to happen," and so away we went. By the time we got to the hospital, she had. In the seven minutes between getting from the car park to the ward, she had four contractions. All right, so it was on. So by the time we got into the room, things started to move very, 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 very quickly. And we should talk about having a birth plan and your idea of how you want things to go and then being open to things not going the way you want it to go. There was a couple of things that didn't go the way we thought. Some unexpected things showed up. Yes. For example, with with Wolfie, there was myconium in the placenta. That's basically so the baby's done a poo. He was so big and he was ready to go, he'd, he'd done a poo inside the placenta so what that happens then is now he's all breathing all that liquid so that ends up in his lungs so we had to get the pediatrician to come into the room and so when wolfie's shoulders were out and the rest of him was still inside audrey where the pediatrician is vacuuming his lungs out because he has wow. yeah because he had myconium in his in his lungs mm. we didn't expect that to happen but man the obstetrician was so calm about it Okay, so what I've noticed here is that the waters are broken, but I can see they're brown. Can you see how they're brown? Okay, so that means baby mm. has done a poo inside the placenta, and that means he's been breathing that. So what we're going to do, I'm just going to call the pediatrician, and, and they're like, by the time he'd finished his sentence, there's a pediatrician standing there. <laughs> we had a really similar experience. When Gemma's water broke, there was myconium in the water. And we, because we're in the birth center, which isn't a hospital room, it's, you know, it's a midwife birth center. Generally, the rule is, if that happens, they'll move you into the hospital, into a birth room because they want to give you access to doctors and so forth. But the midwives, it was Gemma was so close at that point. She wasn't, uh, Iona wasn't coming out yet, but it was, it was imminent that they were the similar thing. They were so calm about it. They said, look, ordinarily, this is where we'd move you, but we think that move is going to be counterproductive to what we're trying to do, which is get the baby out of you. We see hundreds of these, you know, every month. So we're just going to continue. And it was, so great to have that kind of because we had actually more we had I think with three midwives and our doula at one point and just to have that kind of level of calm it's kind of like when I take my car to a mechanic oh (laughs) I don't know I don't know what the hell is going on under the hood but you know someone that I trust talking to me in a very calm manner no, sure. If the if the bill comes back and it's it's a little more than I expected, at least I feel I was well taken care of. It was much the same way. The other thing too, the fear that you have going into these situations is because of the movies that there's going to be yelling and shouting, and they're going to be making split second decisions, and you're not going to have a, uh, you know a leg to stand on. It's not like that. I mean, I'm sure there are instances where it does get very intense, but more often than not, it is a kind of calm. These are professionals. They want the best for you. They want best for the baby. So you're not going to be pushed or rushed into a decision that you can't consider or refer to your birth plan about. When Jem was in active labour, when she was pushing in between the contractions, Mm. what sort of things were you doing 
to engage with her and to kind of ease her discomfort? Well, we'd done some meditation prior. Uh, we'd done some yoga classes and some meditation. And so we had, I had my massage techniques down pat, but to be honest, it was the breathing for both of us was the most helpful thing because like anything, it all comes back to the breath. It centers you, it connects you. And although Jen was going through the physical exertion, you know, mentally we're both going through the same thing. And I found it quite helpful as well to be with there. So after Jem's water broke, they got her to the birthing stool. And that's when, you know, I only started to poke her arms out, was moving towards the shoulders. So I was sitting behind her and they had, we had a mirror between Jem's legs so we could see Iona coming out. But I had her hands and the breathing technique, it was really great because we're breathing together. And if Jem was sort of you know, getting uh, really powerful contractions. The midwife that we had, who was a mid-husband, I don't know if it's a male midwife, is he a mid-husband? Yeah, the mid-man a, 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 yeah I guess had, he's a midwife, yeah. But he was saying like the idea of pushing is actually not accurate because pushing implies tensing up and clenching the muscles. Yeah. He said if you focus on the breathing, that is a much more natural way of allowing the child to move through the birth canal because there is a inhale and then a release, inhale and a release. And so the way he described it, it's almost like an undulating wave. So with each of those powerful contractions, you're breathing in and you're trying to release it with each breath out. And look, Gemma's the one who will have a, a more intimate understanding of how it went. But for me, it seemed to be the thing that actually brought the baby out fairly effortlessly was just being with her and breathing in and out, in and out, and just sort of keeping a steady pace, not allowing her to start yeah. <laughs> doing all that kind yeah. of stuff that you see in the movies. No, no, just calm down, steady breath. It's wild that you say that because that's that's pretty much the same experience that Audrey and I had. I asked her afterwards, like, what was the most helpful? She said, look, the massage was really good. Those particular pressure points on her sacrum really helped when she was, you know, standing by the bed because, you know, she'll have to get into all kinds of positions. Um, there was a point where we, you know, had to get Audrey standing up and because of the way Wolfie was coming down, you're using gravity as well. And so she had to stand on certain angles basically to try and encourage him to, to twist and turn a little bit to get him on his side. But it was the breathing. I asked her afterwards, she goes, it was the breathing that was the most helpful thing. And we, it's funny, man, we had we had a very, a very, very similar experience. The, the midwife, the one thing the midwife I, I really enjoyed with the way that she worked was Wolfie was coming not exactly straight out of the birth canal. He was a little bit bit skew if he was coming in for you know kind of an odd entry. And what she what the midwife was able to do, she was able to basically tap Audrey on the butt, like you know further on her thigh or you know further down here, is go push in this direction. I need you to push in that hmm. direction. So rather than just straight down. You know, she had Audrey on her side at one point and, you know, there was a lot of a lot of that going on. Now, bear in mind, there's a lot of strange sounds that you'll hear while you're in this room. There's hushed tones. No one's shouting. No one's yelling. The only no. person who's making a lot of noise is, is the person giving birth. But there's also the monitor that your, your wife or partner will be wearing the whole time, which is the sound of the baby's heartbeat. And they monitor that continuously the whole time. And I was, when it was happening for me, I just remember that was a there's a mate of mine who his baby his baby's heart stopped beating eight times while wow. they were doing this. Baby's fine. Baby's now eight. Baby's fine. Mm. But the baby's heart stopped beating eight times at one point. They're like, "All right, we're going to have to get this baby out." But there's there's a lot of noises, there's beeps, and there's a, there's also a graph that I have, and um, it's the graph that measures how close the contractions are. And mm. uh, at first they were, you know, however many minutes apart, 10 minutes apart, and then they're closer and closer and closer. And there's also the graph of how dilated the cervix is. And 
Wolfie, when Wolfie came, Audrey's cervix dilation, it looks like a reverse ski jump. It just went, it was <laughs> one hour and five minutes from the moment she wow. got on into the room to, hey, welcome Wolfie. So it was fast, yep. man. It was fast. We were actually pretty lucky because sometimes babies can come a little too fast and, yeah, baby doesn't care and it can do a, a bit of damage on the way out. So let's talk a little bit about what happens once baby's out. The glorious moment in which this child is brought out into the world. Tell me a little bit about what it was like. So uh, was Audrey, She was. you said she was in the birthing stool or was she? Oh, she was on the bed. On the bed. Yeah, she was on the bed. And um, the, the first thing I hear is I hear the sound of his lungs being suctioned out and that's frightening. You know, there's a, there's a baby right there and there's a, a doctor. He's, he's been out into the world for about 12 seconds and there's a doctor you've met three minutes ago who's putting a tube down his throat to vacuum his lungs. And that's, you know, oh, hang on, but I got told in a very calm way that we're doing this because it's poo in the water and da 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 And then when Wolfie started making noise, it was just incredible. I actually got a recording of it. I'll see if I can get Andy to put it at the back of this show. So I, I hit record on my phone and then I laid it on the bed and I recorded like Wolfie at about 26 seconds. Of course you did because you've only got 400 podcasts on the go at the moment. Starting him early, <laughs> mate. Start Starting him early. And it was just incredible. You know, Doc pulls, obstetrician pulls Wolfie out and there he is. There's a bit of show and tell, wrap him in a towel, boom, on Audrey's uh, chest and it was just... It was just incredible. You know, I remember my, my boss, Sean, told me, it's the best day of your life, mate. And everyone, you know, we talked about this in season one, but the people at Network 10 and Warner Brothers moved mountains so I could be there on the day. And I cannot thank them enough because they're right. It's the best day of your life. And even the toppest, most important legal people in the company were like, I don't know, we can't have you miss that. And I, here I am thinking that how are they ever going to push a production one day to either side? You know, there's a couple hundred people coming to work or whatever. They're like, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Don't miss this. Go. It's just television. Go. And it, it, they were right. You, you talked earlier about the uh, two things that uh, the two hormones that are involved in, in childbirth. There's oxytocin and there's adrenaline. And the oxytocin is really important at this point. And this is why uh, you may have heard of us talk in previous seasons about skin to skin. This is something that I only learned about doing the calm birth course. Prior to, I guess, modern birthing techniques, there was a lot of separation between like child and parent. But what they've come to realize is this initial time when the child is born is crucial for bonding. Because you, you can imagine your partner has just come out of this intense physical experience. So they are on cloud nine, like they've got endorphins rushing, they've got oxytocin. And so you have this moment with your child where you can take your shirt off as well, you snuggle up next to your partner and the three of you are having this moment where you're all connected. And it is the most profound experience I've ever had. One, I was just so full of admiration for what I'd just seen. I mean, I just saw a human being brought into the world. It was like mind-blowing. But also there is a kind of nutritional benefit too to kind of like having leaving the umbilical cord connected until all the nutrients have made their way across, having the skin-to-skin -skin moment so you bond with each other, but also just like take a moment to celebrate the end of a nine-month journey. And the beginning of, of another one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's that it feels so good for you because it is so good for all of you. One of the things I didn't, I did not realize this until afterwards, that those moments when the baby's born, the hormones and the pheromones that they're secreting, they trigger a neurological response in men that causes a humongous explosion of brain growth 
Now, our brains as humans, as men, stop developing by the age of 25. And if you weren't an idiot and drank your balls out, um, you should be okay. But I'd, you know, I'd drank Swiss cheese into my head by then. But I experienced this just explosion of neurological growth in my brain because you mm-hmm. need all these new neurons to deal with all this, this new situation that's happening in your life. And that is triggered by this close contact with this baby who's just sending out pheromone signals to all the people around it that not only bond you emotionally but also change your body, change your body to adapt. Now, one of the body changes that happens that we're discussing is um, the breastfeeding. What that does, it it secretes a hormone in in your partner that will then compress her her uterus slowly, slowly, slowly over the coming days. And what what that does is that the the uterine wall will start to, you know, all compress back down. And in the words of Yumi Steins, vaginas are magical things, uteruses are magical things. And it will compress down and down and down and down and down and down and down. Now, with Audrey, that didn't happen exactly according to plan because we had uh, we had an episode of um, postpartum hemorrhaging, which is, you know, it's, it's important to talk about this stuff because it does, it does happen. That's excessive loss of blood from the vagina after, after birth. Now, there's, the, there's two types of it. There's primary postpartum hemorrhaging, which happens within 24 hours after birth, or secondary postpartum hemorrhaging, which is what happened with Audrey. Now, because she's a little bit older, some bodies are different. She had uh, some fibroids going on. Now, what the fibroids did is they stopped the uterus from compressing all the way back down. They basically, I don't know, do you ever put like a tennis ball in your, in your dryer to kind of fluff your sheets up? It's a bit like that. No. Well, <laughs> it's a trick. Tip from the top, mate. <laughs> so the uterus wasn't able to compress all the way back down because it had these big kind of lumpy bits of tissue. They're benign, but lumpy bits of tissue that wouldn't allow it. So wouldn't you know it? Like the first day back at work, I'm out and I get this photo of the bathroom and Charlie, it's the fucking shining, all right? Audrey's had this colossal bleed right after... It was within, I think it was 10 days later or day eight. It was day eight. She had this colossal bleed and I was like, don't worry, I'll clean it up later. And so we had to go back into the hospital at day eight because that blood was going to, that's a real dangerous thing because that, you know, that blood can go septic mm. and get me nasty. So Audrey had to have that blood removed and it was, it was full on, man. <laughs> I was so worried. But again, the, these people, they do it 20 times a day. The people at the hospital sorted us right out. We were really lucky. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot, a bunch of stuff they need to do testing the baby once it's born. You know, they need to weigh it and measure it. They need to check its blood pressure. All, all this stuff is very important, but just rest assured that you can take a few minutes before all that happens just to have some time with your baby. Those uh, pheromones and hormones that Osh was just talking about, it's really important. And there may be, look, I, I, I haven't heard of this, but you may be in a situation where you've got some busy midwives or busy doctors who are wanting to get onto the next job, just know that you can take your time. You don't have to hand over your baby straight away. This is the only time it's going to happen with this child. So hang on to that child. As, just get as much of that, that, that good stuff as you think you need. Yeah. And there's one other thing we should probably talk about, Osh, which is preparing yourself mentally. So you've got through the birth, the baby's in your arms, and now you have to reckon with the fact that you have brought a child into this <laughs> steaming shit pile of a planet (laughs) and how you're going to cope with that. I mean, it is funny. I was surprised by the amount of people after uh, we we gave birth who quite bluntly asked me the question, do you feel okay about bringing a child into this world? And, you know, there's a number of reasons why people think that. And I understand that if you read the news every day, it's easy to think that the, the world is careering off its axis and we're all going to die real soon. But 
if you're feeling that you have those kind of stressful issues going on or you're unsure about the world you're bringing a child into, I can recommend therapy <laughs> and counselling 100%. Sometimes we rely on our partners a little bit to hear that stuff, but in this situation, maybe the person who's about to you know, give birth to your child doesn't also need to be burdened with your mental issues as well. The counsellor I went and saw was fantastic in preparing me because I had all those questions about what kind of planet is she going to grow up to inhabit? How can I bring a child in this world where it already feels so overpopulated? And there are many answers to these questions that we can't get into in this podcast. But having that resource there. And I think a lot of hospitals too offer counselling for fathers or expectant fathers as well. You can join groups, there's Facebook groups, there's hospital groups where you can do, well, I don't know during the pandemic if they can do in-person visits, but I imagine there is support out there. But it is worthwhile just even one or two sessions just to voice all these issues. I mean, Osh, you know better than anyone when that stuff is in your head, it can feel overwhelming. But then once you get it out, either you speak it out to someone or you write it out, it helps you deal with it a lot better. I couldn't agree with you more, Charlie. And if it's your first child, suddenly being responsible for this innocent baby, that can, if you haven't dealt with it before, bring up a whole bunch of stuff about your family of origin, a whole bunch of stuff about what happened to you when you were a kid, your relationship with your father, your relationship with your mother. Yes. All these things. And you may have never considered these things before. And so I can't recommend, I'm with Charlie 100% here, just go, just go anyway. Your partner is going to a, a you know, obstetrician and, and, and making sure that everything's okay. Go and just make sure everything's okay in your head. You may be already doing things you don't realize are a bit weird around the edges. And look, I would say to that, Charlie, and as someone who's been really vocal about, I would have never wanted to bring a child into this world at one point in my life. I was so terrified mm. of, you know, why would I bring a child into a world that's going to be on fire, underwater, and at war over resources all at once? Why the fuck would I do that? What kind of person am I? And, you know, I thought to myself, well, it was my mum actually who took me aside and she could see it in my face because she'd met Audrey by this point. This is when mum was still alive. She took me aside and said, you know, when we were refugees, when we'd fled Lithuania and we were on the road, just those like just long trains of people walking, they were just walking. They walked to Germany basically. It took them mm. fucking years, but they got there. And she said, you know, we're getting strafed by airplanes and, we, you know, we're, we're stealing food and we're trying to do everything we can to survive. She goes, People still stopped and had families. People still made yeah. love and still people still had kids. People still brought children into the, into the world that, as far as they knew, had no fucking clue how it was going to work out. She said, don't deny yourself that. And I'm really grateful that we did, Charlie, because before I had, there was always the option of checking out. There was always the option of just kind of nihilistically going, ah, oh, fuck it, and mm. checking out. But now every single day is full of, just action. How can I do everything I can to make this world better? And I would also put it to you, what person, if you watch the six o'clock news every night or whatever you, however you get your news, what person hasn't held their child in their arms and gone, what the fuck have I done? Like since time mm. started, that's what people have done. And you know what? Yeah. We've figured it out and we will continue to figure it out and it's going to be okay. It is. It's terrifying, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> Charlie, our very special guest dad this week is another mum dad. We've been talking a lot about pre-labor, labor, how you want your birth plan to go. We've also talked about how things, what happens when things don't go the way you want them to go. Now, as we've discussed, both Charlie and I had experiences that were mostly, I guess, adjacent to how we thought they were going to go. But that's not always the case. And because we didn't have that experience, we wanted to get someone on who could share 
what her story was. Now, these days, she's an absolute superstar of Los Angeles breakfast radio on Big Boy's Neighborhood. If you're from California, Big Boy's Neighborhood is the fucking, is the urban radio show that has broken every hip hop star ever. But she did count down the hottest hits in LA with me every Sunday afternoon for years and years and years right across Australia. Please welcome to the show, Natalia Perez. Hey, Natalia. Oh, I have to turn down the TV. <laughs> Natalia, this is Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Congratulations. Thank you. On your uh, childbirth in the last three months, Osha's told me about. Amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So, Natalia, we've been talking about pre-labor and labor, but I understand your experience was a little different. You know, I think what's funny is you try and prepare you have an expectation of what it is. You read the books of what you should, the signs you should be looking out for. And then something happens and your plan just goes out the window. And I think that happens to a lot of couples or parents or moms is what you think is going to happen is not going to happen. And that was my story about at third, the whole time they kept calling my, say my baby was pretty big. Like he was always a week ahead, um, growing size. My husband's like six, three. And I was like a pretty big baby too. So we're like, yeah, it's pretty. We expected the, a big baby, but it just, they kept mentioning it over and over again. And about at 30, I want to say maybe about 35 weeks, they're like, we need to make sure that he's going to flip because, you know, he's a big baby. We want to make sure everything's going to be okay. And he hadn't flipped. And so the next week again, he still hadn't flipped over. And so I actually had to go at the end of 36 weeks, if my memory serves me correct. Um, I just physically go in and have them manually flip him, oh. which was pretty painful because they put this crazy pressure to uh, two doctors, two female doctors came in and were like shoving on my stomach, like pushing him. And you have to just kind of breathe through it. I guess it was a little bit like labor. And I say, I guess, because the guy did not want to budge. He was just like, I'm here. This is the position I like. I'm not moving. You can't do anything about it. So because of my age, his size, the weeks that I was at, the fact that he wasn't going to flip and the placement of my uterus, they decided that I actually had to have a C-section. Right. So we had to go in, schedule the C-section. So we never got to have the... I think this is the moment. It's time. We're ready. And like flashbacks of the I Love Lucy episode where you're practicing grabbing the luggage and going up to the door and trying to be calm. We knew on Monday morning we were going to go down to the doctor's office. We were going to check in. They brought me into a room, started doing all the pre-surgery stuff. And then I had the surgery. And I kind of missed out on the whole pre-labor, like you said, and looking for the signs. And thankfully, I didn't go into any kind of contractions or brachnics before the scheduled C-section because I think that would have maybe brought on more problems. So thankfully he was like, I'm not going anywhere. And then then he was here. (laughs) Look, Natalia, I'm so happy that you're both okay. You did touch on something that maybe people don't consider in that you have all these plans and then baby doesn't care baby's going to do what baby wants to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what would your what would your message be for parents who find themselves in that situation? It's like, no, 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 but I've bought the special salt candle. I'm ready to go. I have the <laughs> thing. I've got the playlist. I'm no. This what what would you say to, you know, parents who find themselves in that situation where push comes to shove literally and they say, "No, nah, that's not how it's going to work. Your birth plan 
is now yesterday's takeaway menu. This is what we're doing now. Yeah. You know, I had my older sister, she's had two babies before me, which was pretty lucky for me because I, she, I got to have someone, you know, that's very close to text and ask any kind of questions. And she actually ended up having two C-sections. I'm pretty thankful that it, my experience wasn't hers because she labored for two days with both of them Whoa. and then got the word of, I'm, hey, I'm really sorry. You're not going to be able to give birth naturally. You're going to have to have a C-section because her body just didn't want to dilate past a certain point. So I, I so I saw her have to more like how she worded it. She mourned her, her birth plan. And so I, I, I went in knowing, hey, anything could happen. Anything can change. I definitely planned for a natural birth. I had, like you said, I had all the, like the aftercare stuff. And I had the seat that you put on the toilet to, you know, help out your lady parts. I had it all like ready to go. And then I had a week to plan for a C-section. So I started purchasing certain things that were going to help me around the house afterwards. But I think first and foremost, it was always whatever is going to be healthiest for the baby. As long as the baby gets here and he or she is healthy, I think if you hold on to that, it might help you kind of go through those emotions of, hey, it's not what you planned, but if your baby's going to be here and he's going to be healthy, then that's what you really, really want. And we joke now about, you know, I'm not going to get that moment to be like, I was in labor for 37 hours with you. Pick up your clothes. Like in 10 years when I'm trying to get him to clean his room. but. I think if you just early on know that nothing go, will go according to plan, I think it might make your life a little bit easier. I know it's hard too because you really wa- I, I really wanted to know what it felt like. I really wanted to go through the natural birth process and you know push and have them come out. But but this was our story. This was our little journey, and I still got that moment of that you know him pulling him out and us looking at him and just being in awe and just. All I could say was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh, I can't feel my legs, but oh my God, look at he's here. This is amazing. But I definitely, like they say, plan for the unexpected because you, you can't plan. You can't plan any of this. I think maybe like two weeks in, I realized I had no newborn clothes. I had all like three months and he was swimming in these onesies and I started freaking out and I was like, I didn't have newborn clothes. How did I not plan for this? And then you go, great, Amazon is going to be here tomorrow with some <laughs> new, a bundle of new ones. I thank goodness for Amazon. Yeah. And then you just kind of keep rolling with the bunches. Just to roll back just a second there, Natalia, you said something quite powerful and I think it's worth exploring. You talked about mourning your birth plan. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, for my sister, I remember her saying, you know, she. my sister is a very type A personality and she so for her, it was really hard to kind of go in and say, this isn't how I envisioned this and this isn't how it's going to be. And so it was, it was a little hard for her. And I, I held on to that phrase of just going, it's okay to be sad that it's not going to go the way that you wanted it to go. It's okay to be upset about it and for it to change and for you not to like that change. And to just kind of go through those emotions, especially when you have the hormones going through you. And I remember on the, when we went in for the flip and they tried three different times to flip him and they, and you know, my doctor was just like, it's not going to happen. He's not going to flip. And so we're going to have to have the C-section. I just remember going, 
oh, 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 okay. And then I think it was like five seconds later, I just burst into tears because Mm. it was that moment of the reality of, okay, it's not, we might have to have a C-section. It's you're going to have to have a C-section. It's just not going to be what you wanted. And it definitely was not what I wanted because I've never had major surgery. So it wasn't something that I was looking forward to. And it's scary too. You don't, it's surgery and you hear crazy stories. And so I didn't know really what to expect, but I remember they said, okay, we're going to give you a little bit of time and it's going to be okay, but we'll, we'll give you a moment. And so they left the room and it was just me and my husband in the room and he was trying to reassure me and he was really, really sweet about it too. He's like, it's going to be okay. As long as the baby is healthy, I'm sorry. You're so strong. You did really great. I did feel a little bit like it was my fault that he hadn't flipped because, you know, maybe I could have altered my eating plan throughout my pregnancy and he wouldn't have been as big. You take it on. But I think after a couple of days, I, I kind of came to the conclusion of, okay, look, as long as he's healthy, we're here now. I can't change anything that I did during my pregnancy. He's a big boy. He wasn't actually even that big. I'm just going to put that out there. They were making it seem like I was having baby shack and he wasn't that big. <laughs> <laughs> Natalia, the recovery from the C-section, obviously there's things that you're going to be limited to do physically. Uh, for your partner and for any uh, partners, husbands out there listening or partners, what can they do to help with the physical recovery of the C-section? I imagine picking the baby up, opening doors, that kind of stuff you'll need assistance with. Yeah. Um, I kept telling him the week before, I was like, there's going to be a lot of things I'm going to need help with. You know, obviously I'm just, I'm going to have this crazy incision. They're cutting me all the way through to get the baby out and I'm going to really need your help. And so I think it depends on the type of personality your partner has. For me, I am a, let me, I got it. I can handle it. Let me do the laundry, the, the dishes, prep for my radio show and watch TV at the same time kind of gal. Like I, I can handle it all. And I had to really take a moment. There was a moment where I was trying to change the baby and my husband and I said, here's the dirty diaper. Can you put it in the, the diaper pail thing that we have? And he didn't know how to open it because I had never showed him how to open it. And it's like the slide one. And it was in the middle of the night and he's getting frustrated. And he was like, how do you get this thing open? And I was like, just let me do it. I got it. And he goes, no, you have to let me figure it out. You can't always, you can't do things right now. Just let me figure it out. I got this. And so it was a really eye-opening moment of me stepping back and saying, you have to let him do it because I wanted to do it all myself. And so I think for me, it was letting them handle it and figure it out. And for him, he did really have to step up and he had to learn how to do the swaddle on his own or pick up the baby or figure out the dishwasher. <laughs> Cause those are just the things I like to do. But he was very also, there were moments where I needed help taking a shower or I needed help getting, you know, my dressings undone and then they got stuck and he had to sit there and try to get them off for me. He helped me put my shoes on. He had to, you know, help me go to the bathroom sometimes. They were just like walking to the bathroom in those first couple of days. So I know it was very hard on him, but it does get easier. But yeah, if you're a partner of someone who had a C-section, just 
it's going to be okay, but try to do as much as you can for your partner and pick up whatever they needed. I dropped everything. That was the hardest part. And then I had a friend send me claw grabby things. So if you are preparing for a C-section, <laughs> pick up one of those on Amazon as well. Because you will drop <laughs> things and you you can't bend over. You can't do anything. It was the hardest. That was the hardest part for me. Go fetch mama's claw grabby thing. And you know what? You can hold on to that for when they are 10 and being naughty and you can use the claw grabby thing and go after them with it. Now, I was going to say, if you ever get sentenced to community service, you'll be picking up trash yeah. on the side of the road with yeah, one of those as well. So. <laughs> Natalia, you are so generous for sharing your story and we are so lucky to have you tell us your journey on this show. We're so fortunate. Natalia, I adore you. You're my favourite. Oh, I'm so I happy for you. you. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Do you guys want me to leave the podcast no, while no, you no. have this little Come to in? Australia. We're mostly COVID-free <laughs> since January. So you guys are amazing, seriously. You'll only do two, two weeks in quarantine, but then you can come and have a play date. John Matthew and Wolfie can have a play date. It'll be great. That would be amazing. I know. I just, as much as I love my home and I'm very happy to be here with my son, like, oh, uh, we need to, we, where I'm at, we need to take, note from you guys and I don't understand how we're not. <laughs> uh, that's a whole other podcast. Natalia, you're the best. Thank you so much for your time. Love you so much. Talk to you later. Love you. Bye. Bye. Oh, it's come to that time of the show where we induct another father into the Dad Pod Hall of Fame. Uh, this season, we've decided to look at father figures, not necessarily biological fathers, but uh, fathers nonetheless. And I thought we'd go for a bit of more of a local flavor to this one. Uh, I'm not sure if you're a fan of this TV show in the early 90s, but I was. Uh, if I said Reverend Bob, <laughs> do you know who I'm talking about? I think it's vaguely neighbors, right? No, it's East Street, oh Reverend God. Bob Brown, the cool, trendy vicar of Westside. He drove a Chevy. He had an earring. He was a good-looking, cool cat played by Tony Martin, not the comedian Tony Martin, Blue Murder Tony Martin. Reverend Bob offered counsel to everyone in Westside, but he was also a father figure to many a lost soul, including Harley a street kid who reminded Bob of himself when he was a young guy running around on the streets causing trouble. Turns out Harley uh, was his actual biological son, so that torpedoes this whole concept for a second. But let's move on for that because I remember Reverend Bob for the time he discovered Dylan, the boy chained under a house raised by dogs. And Reverend Bob managed to not only take uh, Dylan in, dog boy, take him in, but teach him how to eat by crushing up wheat picks in a bowl and pouring water on it. Within three episodes, Dylan was had learned the power of speech, was walking and talking, and it turns out with a with a nice hot shower and a, and a comb, you can turn a dog boy into a productive member of society. Reverend Bob, Dad Pod salutes you incredible skills those skills are absolutely amazing now i'm now i'm distressed that i missed east street that's incredible oh, check it out. now i also know where dog boy got their name from that's <laughs> that's so sick i love it i absolutely love it well that brings us to the end of another episode you can always email us if you want askdadpod at gmail.com that's where we are it's a really simple email address to remember we're also dadpodgram on the Instagram if you need to talk to us at all. I know it was a longer episode today, but fuck, we're talking about labor. It's going to be a longer episode. Come on, you got to cover it all. All right. Yeah, we've got international guests. I mean, it's going to chew up some bandwidth. You got to you got to grant us that, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a big day. It's the day that you will see the power of creation brought forth 
in front of your eyes, like this human being that you have known and loved has literally taken genetic material and created a human inside of her and then brought it into the world. It's a pretty powerful moment and uh, it deserves a full episode. And here's the good news. That uh, feeling doesn't ever stop. At least once a day, Osh, I will elbow Gemma and I'll point to our daughter and I'll say, we made that. Look at that. That's us. Yeah. I point to Audrey. I, I do the same. I go to Audrey. I go to point to Audrey. You see that? This is like half of my chromosomes in that and everything else was you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, you're absolutely right. Like I, I, I hold him in my hand sometimes like, I can't believe that you, this human being that I'm now starting to just really become really great friends with, you know, I'm really starting to become great friends with this little man. Yeah. We created him and it's nuts. And I know that, you know, you, you skirted around the, the edges of theology for some time, but to stand there and realize that, no, actually this is divine. This is, I have a divine force within me. My wife is pure divinity. She is pure yeah. creation here we are. I don't need a, a big book somewhere and a man with a beard or a weird hat or, or smoking incense or whatever the person you want to believe in. That's fine if that's what you want to do. I have the evidence of it right before me that true divinity, true creation is us two together. And this is amazing. Now I've got to clean up a nappy. <laughs> and just like that, that pod becomes a cult. Osh, great to talk to you this week. We'll be back again next week with another episode of Dad Pod. Until then, go to bed. <laughs> oh, was... oh, Hello, mate. Hi. Look at all your hair. Yeah, I Amazing. You are incredible. Oh, there you go. Here's your boy, honey.